1 Corinthians chapter number 1. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. Work your way down toward the, near the end of the chapter here. Verse number 28 is our focus today. I'm going to start in verse number 26, and we're going to talk about another tool that God has in His toolbox. 1 Corinthians 1.26 says, For consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, so that he might nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Lord, thank you so much for your word. This morning we, we sit at your feet again. We ask that you might captivate us with what we see here today. Give us a, a full glimpse of what you are explaining to us. That we might be in awe of you. And give you the praise. And also give you the trust that we know we should. Work through this text, Lord, and challenge us thoroughly, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes uh, I like to think through things that are complicated and try to find how many different ways uh, can I make it more complicated. Um, When I was in high school, I took an electronics course, and uh, we had this giant board in front of us, they had a name for it, and I don't even remember, it wasn't on the final, I guess, but uh, uh, there were circuits all over this board, and we would put in diodes, and we'd put in capacitors, we'd put in all these different devices all over it, plug them in, and hook up wires, and and make uh, just a whole uh, scheme of things to turn on a light bulb, or something like that. And instead, I would sit there and think of how many different ways can I cross these wires and mix this up so that when I hit the switch, every one of them blew out at once. And I always thought that was quite a challenge, just to see how many different uh, um, shorts can I put on that board at one time. It was kind of fun, but it all came down to the same thing. Nothing worked. And so, it was just kind of a fun way to do that. I, I would try to do that with my children when they were young and see if I could blow circuits in their mind at times. Uh, I don't know if you've been like that before, but I had a little fun with one that I, I used to use on them. And I'd walk up to him and I'd say, what am I holding in my hand? you remember this conversation? Megan starts to laugh. They'd say, nothing. And I'd say, what did you take out of my hand? they said nothing. I said, what's in your hand? they said, nothing. I said, give it back. It takes a little while to think that through. Listen, oh, it's fun to do that to a four-year-old. <laughs> they're trying to put, what, what are you talking about? 
That's almost where we are this morning with this verse. Verse number 28. The things that are not. The things that are not. In our study of tools, there's a lot of, of things I can explain. And some of them are easier to explain. This of all the tools, I think, is the hardest tool. Not only to explain, but even to produce. The things that are not. It's not in my toolbox. If I went looking for there, you wouldn't find it. A thing that is not. You see, we've been working through these tools and understanding them, and and, uh, we have seen the foolish things, we've seen the weak things, we've talked about the base things and the despised things in verse number 20. 7 and 28. These are the things that God has chosen. And we have seen that the Corinthians didn't uh, prefer those tools. Their preference was on the wise tool. Uh, in verse 26 tells you that there were not many who were wise according to the flesh, not many mighty and not many noble. And those are the three that the Corinthians especially highlighted. The wise and the mighty and the noble. They thought those obviously are, are the tools that would bring most success they would, they would uh, accomplish purposes. They would, uh, well, they're the leaders. They're the significant things. And we should fill up the church with the wise and the mighty and the noble. Now, the text does say that God does use those, but not all the time. There's not many of them. Uh, when we consider a whole church, we're not made up of uh, many who are wise or many who are mighty or many who are noble either. But that's kind of what makes this whole study exciting and encouraging to me. Is that God has a different criteria for tools. And that's very encouraging. I used to... Uh, well, we've used this picture of a toolbox here. Just an illustration of sorts. Uh, just based on the idea that God is going to accomplish His purpose. He is going to complete the church, Right? That's what he promised to do. And uh, with that, he uses particular tools, and I've been using the illustration of a toolbox as, as uh, the kind of tools he wants to use to accomplish that purpose, to bring great glory and great success. Uh, it's just fascinating as, as we think it through. These are not typical tools. When we see this list again, they're quite contrary to the opinion of this world. If we were to sift through God's selection here again, uh, maybe there would be those who would recommend other kind of tools uh, if the work is to be done quickly or done correctly. And yet the world is shamed, as the text would say. He uses these tools, the foolish things of the world, to shame the wise. God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And the world is shamed as they witness what God can do with what they consider to be foolish. These tools are illogical choices to them. They would not match what the world expects. Uh, The world forgets that God is the one who has made us the way we are, right? We are designed according to His plan. Uh, The church was His idea, wasn't it? 
I think that's what I've read before. He's the one who's created it. It's built according to his blueprints. It will function according to his design. It will succeed according to his honor and according to his glory. And as much as I find it annoying that the world wants to give its opinions to the church on how it ought to function, it grieves me that the church listens to it. The world finds our gospel to be foolishness. They believe that the shedding of blood for forgiveness of sin is a foolish idea. They believe that the preaching of the cross is a foolish thing to do. Yet, it was that gospel, and it was that shed blood, and it is that preaching of the cross that accomplished salvation for me and for you. We wouldn't call that foolish now, would we? And yet here in 1 Corinthians, if you back up to chapter 18, or verse 18 of chapter 1, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. I thank the Lord he uses foolish things. That he pulled out a foolish tool out of his box, and, and though the world may consider it foolish, we take this to heart. And we are encouraged by the fact that God can use foolish things to bring about his glory. I'm thankful for that tool. We have discovered that God uses weak tools too, haven't we? Again, the opposite of the world's opinion, for they think only things get done by strength. Things with no strength, <laughs> things that are helpless, uh, that's a bother. That's a burden to the world. We've got to carry them along, don't we? We got we got to have them. Uh, uh, we've got to prop them up in order to accomplish anything. They say there's no purpose lugging around a tool that can't do anything. That's the world's opinion. But God has a great purpose in using weak tools, doesn't He? The weaker they are, the better it seems. Consider for a minute the logic of using a weak tool. If God only worked with the strong, how many of us? would have a purpose in the church. If God only used strong. Let's start eliminating a few, because God only uses the strong. Well, babies, that, that wouldn't fit the picture well, would it? Let's set the babies aside. Let's set the, the infants aside, even the very young children. Well, we're going to have to take those out of consideration, because they just don't have the strength to do anything. And then on the other hand, let's talk about the aged for a few minutes. And maybe we shouldn't. Well, you know, we used to be able to do this, and you used to be able to do that, but now it's a challenge to walk across the room sometimes, right? Some of you know that. Some of us look back and say, well, I'm no longer capable of such vigorous work and things of that nature. I suppose... This kind of weakness would disqualify another group in the church, wouldn't it? If there's only strength that God is interested in. So in between the, the very young and the, and the aged, we might find those who are strong, but what about those who are ill? You've, you've had a pretty rough week with that. 
So I guess you can't be very useful today, can you? Because God only uses the strong. And if you're weak and you feel uh, that way today, maybe God can't use you. What about the handicapped? Of course, you'd have to eliminate them too, wouldn't you? You'd start losing a lot of people. How about you who are worn out today? Anyone worn out? Had a tough week? You're a little tired this morning? God can't use you. If it was only based on strength. How many is left? Hmm. Not many. <laughs> you starting to get the picture? This is God's wisdom. I really like this. He chooses those who have no strength for his purpose. And I think that permits any one of us to be used in his plan. Because he chooses the weakest. I've said this on several occasions and I repeat it again. Never underestimate what God can do with his tools. He chooses the weak. I'm thankful for that tool. We saw that he chooses the base tools as well. A tool without a name. Uh, uh, the world holds these tools in suspicion. They don't know that company. They don't know how reliable they are. They're unproven. They, they didn't come with a replacement guarantee. We can't use a tool like that. Uh, we don't, they don't wear recognizable labels. We have no history of their success. They weren't recommended by consumer reports. Uh, we, we, we just don't have their car facts. So we can't use a tool like that, can we? They don't wear a name. But they're the tool God chooses. That's what we saw, right? It's a tool God chooses. He's not dependent on that name. He's not dependent on your history. He, well, he prefers to work with nobodies at times. With no histories and no records to, to step back in. There's nothing to set them up in significance. See, that way we come away that we're absolutely sure that the glory and the success is not attributed to what kind of person we are, but the kind of God He is. He chooses base things just to show how great He is. It's good for us to check this every now and then, because our attitudes tend to promote ourselves, don't they? We think highly of ourselves, and uh, too little of him. So God says, I choose base things. And that's the tool you pull out of the box from time to time. I'm thankful he does that. I'm thankful as well that he has chosen the tools that people throw away. The despised tools. As we saw them last week. Rejected because they just don't measure up. According to the world's idea. You go to turn a screw with them and their handle spins. You got to pry something open with it and they bend under the pressure. The world has little patience with a tool like that. They don't want their tools to, to not meet their expectations. They don't want you to, to, uh, to fail in the time of pressure and need. So they throw away tools that don't measure up. They, they toss them out because they're despised. But God collects these kind of tools and he puts them in his box. God chooses the despised, right? It says so. 
He doesn't reject us. Aren't you glad for that? He chooses us. He uses us for the sake of the church. And there's something so beautiful in the picture where God can take a a pot that is cracked or a tool that is broken and bring about glory. And He does. And it's an amazing thing to watch. As we saw last week, these tools best resemble, I think, our own Savior who was broken and bruised and despised and crushed for our salvation. (laughs) This kind of reminds us again not to look at the tool but to the one who uses such a tool for his glory. Now, with those four tools that we've talked about already, all of those, I could produce something that would resemble a tool like this. But now I've got my problem today because I have to produce a tool that is not. By that, the Greek means they do not exist. A tool that does not exist. Now that's an interesting thing, isn't it? A non-existent tool. It means nothing. Some people say, well, in the world's eye, that means that they're just so unimportant, so insignificant, so so rejected, it's as if they don't even exist. So they kind of work it way that way in some commentaries. It's just an unimportant tool that the world's opinion is it doesn't exist. But think for a minute if we take this literally. A tool that does not exist, God uses. God chooses. A tool that doesn't exist. Follow the progression. A foolish thing. It's not desired. It may still have some merit, somehow. Weak things have no strength. But if they can't move anything, at least you could use them to prop open the door. Right? Just put them there. There's still something we find in a weak thing. A base thing has no name. But if we have an obscure job, well, who's going to notice that I use an na- unnamed brand to do the job? Rejected things can always be donated to the thrift store. We found a purpose, at least, the world would, in all those other four tools. But here's where the quandary comes in. What do you do with something that doesn't exist? Well, that's far from any value or usefulness. You can't even call it foolish. You can't even call it weak. You can't call it base. You can't even despise it. It doesn't even exist. Now, you may wonder and think it difficult to see how something that doesn't exist could have any value in running a church. How does God use something that doesn't even exist? Try writing a sermon about something that doesn't exist. Sit there and think, how do you explain this one? It doesn't even exist. I can't tell you its shape. I can't tell you its color. I can't tell you what material it's made out of. I can't tell you the things you use it for. I can't illustrate it with anything at all. Don't even worry about name, name brand stuff. I don't even have a name for it. It's not in my box. I can't illustrate it. It doesn't exist. (laughs) You know, there's something interesting in that. Notice what he says in verse number 29. 
28. And the base things of the world and the despised things God has chosen, the things that are not. So that, here's something interesting, so that he might nullify the things that are. Now this is what started my curiosity, especially on this. Because the world, as you know, stresses the things that works, right? They like the things that work. A lot of credence goes into ideas that bring about results. And sometimes you know they operate with the idea that the ends justify the means. Whatever it takes to get you there, as long as there's success at the end of the road, that works. They use that concept all the time. They've even thrown it into Christian circles and they use it in the sense that whatever works for you is just fine. You ever hear it? They've been using that in theology for a little while now. They've been mingling that into church concepts for a while now. And so they say, well, if, if that brings results for you, then it must be right. That's the concept that we're being taught. We're just looking for results. We're willing at times to put up with the tool just to get the result done. Look what God says about that in this phrase, verse 28. God uses the things that are not, non-existent tools, to nullify the things that do exist. He has a particular purpose for a non-existent tool. It's to nullify the things that exist. What I think this, this has to do with is if we pile up things that work, just start putting them in a stack here. All the things that work. The idea of nullify, God scatters them. Just scatters the pile all over. The verb is very intensive, by the way. It's pretty impressive. He's not fooling around when he does this. When he scatters it, he scatters it. To the four winds, he abolishes them. He destroys them. He sets them loose. He causes them to fail. He takes away their effectiveness. He makes them vanish. He makes them void. We use the word nullify. He nullifies the things that are. And I was thinking that through in the way that the church has fallen in love with the business strategies of this world. We've invested a lot of time. I say we as a church in general, not this church particularly, but as a church in, in our country certainly and throughout the world, no doubt. We've invested a lot of time. We've invested a lot of people. We've invested a lot of money in projects to make the world successful. To make the church successful. We've been marching down that same road, hand in hand. The business world wants to succeed. They suggest to the church, hey, this will help. We want you to succeed too. So we bought it. We dove right in. We walked alongside with them. We've listened to their popular polls. We've gone to their seminars. We've even listened to their successful people. I even witnessed one time years ago a church strategy program where they brought in significant people to help us in the church understand how to grow, how to succeed. And the people they brought in to tell us weren't even believers. But they were successful. And they were supposed to help us understand how to run a church. 
I cringe at the thought. I cringe at the thought. And it doesn't make me wonder at all what God thinks about it. He sees us pile up our works, the things that are. We stack them up and we say, these are the things that work and these are the people that work and these are the things we desire. And He sweeps it away. He sweeps it away. Think again about how God has designed the church. Let's go for a walk in Ephesians for a minute. Keep your bookmark here. Let's go to Ephesians chapter uh, 2 for starters. Ephesians chapter 2. says, And you, verse number 1, were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. Now that's not a good way to start, is it? What's the world's recommendation for this? Vitamins. I don't know what they say. More exercise. They, they come up with some idea. You can't stay in that position. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of who? This world. <laughs> Are they trying to help us? We're in the same place they started. But this is where God finds us first, right? That's where He finds us. What's He do? Well, jump down to verse number 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love in which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Raised us up with Him. Seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? That's what God did. We were dead, and God is the one who's, who has, because of His mercy and love, made us alive with Christ. Made us alive with Him. Then what does He do? Verse number 10. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's at work, isn't He? And we are His workmanship. And He's created us that we might work in what He has prepared. Fascinating thing He's, at, he's busy about. Chapter 4. Jump over there for a second. In verse number 11. Let's talk about His work for a minute. Who are His tools? It says in verse 11, He gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Wait, we just missed something. Verse number 12. Who's working? The equipping of the saints. What are the saints for? The work of the service. So, God's tools are His saints, right? What is a saint? It's one who's been saved by Jesus Christ, made alive together with Him, right? The one that God has been working in. The one that God has prepared us for good works. And now He says, now I've got a purpose for you. You work. You're part of the work of service. That's the way I've designed it. That's what it, What's my goal? Verse 13. Well, verse 12. To build up the body of Christ. How do we know when it's finished? Verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Are we there? 
Have we all attained to the unity of the faith? Until we all attain to the knowledge of the Son of God. Are we all there? Until we all attain to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Are we all there? You know what that means? There's still work to be done. Right? We're still at work. God is using His saints to accomplish the goal of building up the body until we look like Christ. Now, the question is, will it be done? Will it be done? Well, according to chapter number 5, verse number 25, I know the passage is teaching us practically about husbands loving their wives, but look at what is written next to it. This is a reality. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she should be or would be holy and blameless. Is this what he's producing? A church, perfect, that he will present on that day. Aren't you glad the world helped with their opinions? All their strategies? Surely the Lord needed that help, didn't he? Their direction on how to be? You know, either the church will reflect Christ, or the church will reflect the world. Which strategy would you prefer to be a part of? Which one is the Lord doing? He's producing a church that will reflect His Son. Right? What do you think He thinks of the seminars? And the strategies? And all the celebrities the world keeps bringing into the church. And the church opens up their arms and says, bring them in. We need to see the polls. We need to see the plans. We need to see how to make this thing work. What have we forgotten? God doesn't need to work with things that are. Does he? Do we need to, to depend on things that are? How many seminars did God attend? To come up with this plan. How many polls did God take. Just to see the world, what the world would think. In Isaiah 55. God says my thoughts are not your thoughts. And my ways are not your ways. Declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth. So my ways are higher than your ways. And my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. <laughs> According to the scripture. God chose to make this world and all that's in it but he didn't consult anybody who did he purchase the plans from where did he get his materials Lowe's we read in the beginning what God created the heavens and the earth do we believe that says so. It says in Hebrews, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. Just think how mind-blowing that is. 
He speaks the word and it exists. Is that powerful? He commands and it happens. He just speaks. What is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Just look around on a beautiful Oklahoma morning and look at the things that are. Where did they come from? Who created this world? And what did he create it out of? Have we forgotten forgotten that God can do much with nothing? Consider the plan of salvation. Who did he consult to find out how to save a man? Who showed him a model of how it should be done? How many polls did he have to take to see what the world thought we're most likely to accept? You know what we would do if we had a part in it. We would suggest a few things, wouldn't we? <laughs> Lord, here's an idea for you. Why don't you... Uh, um, eh, it's not much, but give a little bit of weight to our works, okay? I mean, we do things down here. Can't you at least give us a, a little bit of... I mean, let us give you a little help. Just a little bit. Uh, a little credit. You don't have to put our name in big print in the credits. Just a little down at the bottom. Just say, you know, we did a little bit here. You can mingle it in with faith if you want to. Just, it doesn't have to be so visible. But a little bit of works will help. So we think. And God said it shall not be by works, lest any man should what? Boast. Okay, God. Well, if you don't work, how about laws? Just a few laws. Not many laws, just, just a couple. Give it a little structure. You know, we like laws for that purpose. We've got to know our boundaries, don't we? After all, we've got to know what, what, what we can do and what we can't do. It helps us know where the guardrails are on the side of the road. You know, things like that. We, we've got we've to know where we belong. So we don't need many laws, just a couple of laws. Just mingle them in a little bit with this salvation thing. Um, God says, don't you remember that breaking of one law makes you accountable for all of them? How many laws do we need to break to become a sinner? One. Doesn't take long, does it? You know, one sin is sufficient to condemn a man forever. Isn't that true? Mm-hmm. Imagine the spiritual debt we have because of our sin. I'm sure it make our national debt look very insignificant in comparison to the spiritual debt this nation has. Incredible, isn't it? Move over to Colossians. You might, might still be in Ephesians. Move to Colossians chapter 1. Look at these words. Verse 13. It says, He rescued us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of His Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Do you like those words? Look what God has done. He's transferred us. He's moved us and rescued us. He's redeemed us. He's forgiven us. 
In Romans 8 verse 3, it says what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. See, we give a little credence to the law at times and say, a little bit won't hurt us. God says it's weak, it can't do anything. But God can do it. And God did it by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. And back here in Galatians, you could back up there for a minute. Chapter number 4. Galatians 4. Beautiful little set of verses. Verse 4 and 5. It says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption of sons. God's setting us free from the things that we have set up as significant. As the things that are. The things that will make us what we are and make us succeed. God says, no. I do it a different way. He sets us free. The salvation of a single soul is a miracle that only God can do. Do you believe that? You can't do it. I can't do it. The world doesn't have a strategy for such a thing. God does. He's not dependent on one single thing of this world to see it done. Right? He is not dependent on anything but what He did Himself. Amazing. It's amazing what He can do. And so at times we sit back and we limit Him. And I don't think we do it on purpose, but I think we do it still. We limit him by saying that he can only work with things that are. And so we gather up our things that are. And we bring in our pile of the things that are. We become partial to the wise. We become partial to the mighty. We become partial to the noble. But we've forgotten that God doesn't need the wise. He doesn't need the mighty. He doesn't need the noble. He doesn't need the strong. He doesn't need the, what the strong can do. He doesn't need the advantages of a name. He doesn't need the supplies. He doesn't need the strategies. He doesn't need anything. God works with what? Things that are not. So He could nullify the things that are. Incredible what our God can do. Think of this story, and I love this story. I, it's one of my all-time favorite Old Testament situations. King Jehoshaphat's in trouble. Righteous king. Wants to do what's right. He did many things that uh, pleased the Lord. And one day he finds several armies surrounding him. They threatened. They said, we're coming down. We're going to take everything you have. Jehoshaphat, give up now. You can't possibly win. You're greatly outnumbered. There's no hope for you. Jehoshaphat did what I think we should learn, and that is went right to the Lord with it. In fear and trembling, he stood before the Lord, and he called for all the people to pray as well, and he approached God and said, We need you. There is nothing we can do to... to Get away from this. We're going to be destroyed without your help, Lord. We need you. The paraphrase of my reckoning here, God says, Okay, okay, Jehoshaphat, I'll rescue you. 
or defeat those armies. I don't need your help. Don't do anything. All I want you to do is watch. (laughs) So tomorrow, come down with the army. Just come down and watch. Let me show you what I could do with nothing. Jehoshaphat thought this through and he says, well, you know what? Since God's not going to want us to work here at all, why even send the army? Let's send the choir. That's what he did. They went down that day to the battlefield singing praises to the Lord. That's all they chose to do. Just start singing praises to the Lord as they marched down there. You know, that would be rather intimidating for a foreign army, wouldn't it? To look up and think, here they come. Wait, it's the choir. And within moments, those armies were destroyed. The choir kept on singing. I think they kind of raised the pitch a little bit there, wouldn't you? Sang a little bit more excitedly as they got toward the part where they realized, you know what? God doesn't need anything to accomplish what He does. Sometimes, folks, we need to learn to watch Him and learn how to praise Him while He's at work. I think that would be good for us. If God could create this world out of nothing, and Job says the angels sang for joy when they watched it. And if God could save Jehoshaphat without any contribution from them, and they chose just to sing for joy as he did so. And if God could send his son into this world to save our souls, and the whole sky is full of the heavenly host singing and praising God, glory to God in the highest, I think there's a lesson here to learn, don't you? When God works in the church and He puts out His hand and He reaches for nothing and He makes it a something as He has done with the church. Shall we remain with our tongues tied? Shall we refrain from praises? Let's never underestimate what God can do. What God can do with foolish things. What God can do with weak things. What God can do with base things. What God can do with despised things. What God can do with nothing. Don't underestimate what God can do with such a tool. And I guess what we really need to understand is this. The tool wasn't all that necessary. Because God could work with nothing. I think what we need to know is the one who uses the tools and not the tools themselves. When's the last time you've really focused on Him and not on you? When's the last time I focused on Him and not on me? When's the last time we realized that what this church is in its history, in its present day existence, and what it's going to be is because of God and not what we have supplied in our strategies, in our wisdoms, in our strengths. This is God's work. We can watch and wonder. We can praise Him for it. 
We know the end of the story, don't we? The church will stand before him perfect. And who will get that glory? He will. Amazing what our God can do. I bring you to that today because next week I'm going to talk about boasting. Can you guess what it's all about? So that no man can boast. What a great conclusion to what's in that toolbox. Heavenly Father, thank you for who you are. We truly stand in awe of you today. If we would but reflect on what you can do. We quickly say that you are omnipotent, all-powerful. You can do anything. But does our faith follow our declaration? Do we believe that, Lord? And do we live in light of that? It's not so much something we might write on our doctrinal statement, but is it lived out in our hearts, Lord, that we believe you and what you can do, that we trust you and what you will do? Or have we become like the rest of this world, dependent on the things that are, the strategies and the plans and the resources and the people that we think are necessary accomplish your work. Teach us again of who you are. And bring us back to this place, Lord, where we praise you for the work that is done in our midst. To you be the honor and the glory and the praise now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.